to reflect for a minute or so on why uh, you have attachment for friends and relations, and if that is really justified, if you look at the situation clearly. And also see how that attachment is based on how they relate to you. That if those same people treated other people, you know, with the same attachment, with the same kindness that they treat you, would you still be attached to to them? If they treated the people you didn't like with kindness, would you still be attached to them? So see how this discrimination of sentient beings who are uh, more worthy of happiness than others uh, comes strictly from our own self-perspective, our own uh, self-preoccupied mind. And then do the same thing for people that you don't get along with. How you label them bad, negative, and corrupt, or whatever labels you give them in, give to them, and you put them in a box of, you know, totally uh, unworthwhile and even deserving of suffering not happiness, and reflect how that is also coming from, you know, holding so tightly to your own ideas, your own opinions, how, uh, you know, a lot of the dislike we have for somebody is because how they relate to us, but they uh, do have friends, and they're nice to their friends, and they're loving to other people. So just um, because they aren't loving and kind to us doesn't mean that from their side they're awful people. 
So again, see how uh, this relationship comes about because we're seeing people through the perspective of I, me, my, and mine. And they're not inherently uh, good or bad or worthy of happiness or worthy of misery. And then think of the strangers and, again, how we feel rather apathetic towards them because they don't influence us one way or another. So again, here too, our feeling towards them is based on how they relate to me. And we confuse that with who they are are and what kind of human being they are and the complex human being uh, but instead we just put them into the category of almost like inanimate objects that we have to work our way around to get what we want and so how that way of judging people and feeling not caring what happens to them 
also is based on our own self-preoccupation. And then remember that all of these beings want happiness and want suffering. And their uh, wish for happiness and not suffering is equally as strong in every single one of them. And getting it, you know, in touch with your own wish for happiness and not misery that they have that same wish, then have a feeling of uh, concern for them and compassion for them and wishing them well. And then on that base, 
cultivate bodhicitta, wanting to attain full awakening so you can help to liberate each and every one of those beings from samsara. and open your eyes and come out of your meditation. Ding. This meditation really makes you think. Especially when you get into sometimes, well, why do I dislike that person? And what you realize is, is it's because I'm jealous of them. I actually admire their good qualities, but I want that status, and I want those qualities, and I want that renown, and they can't have it. Yeah. So because I'm not getting what they have, then I make them something bad, who's worthy of my antipathy, who, you know, they do nothing good in their life. I mean, they're a whole complicated, sentient being with many different aspects into their character and their history. But because we're jealous, they, again, they, we reduce them to a stereotype, you know, where we have an idea of this is who they are and we don't like it because they're better than me. Or they have what I don't. Or, you know, I'm too lazy to work to get that, and I think I should have entitled it. I am entitled to it, but they got it without having to work for it. Or whatever it is, yeah. So it's quite interesting to uh, really look at the reasons we give for feeling close to some people and feeling antipathy for others. It tells us a lot about ourselves and how we look at other people yeah, and how we situate ourselves uh, with other people. And it's also very interesting in doing that uh, to look at have how we have this idea of my space. Yeah. This is my space. This is my territory. This is my room. This is my office. These are my shoes. This is where I like to sit. This is my cushion. This is, you know, how I should, you know, just on very basic things in our life. Yeah. This is my piece of toast. And, uh, you know, how we then when somebody else, 
Yeah. Takes our piece of toast by accident from the toaster. Yeah. Or they're in our space without asking permission or sit in our chair or use our cushion or, you know, any, you know, they took my pen and didn't ask me permission. You know, how uh, we get so wigged out about this stuff. You know, because, you know, this is mine. And what is mine is very important, and it's not yours. And you should know. The whole world should know this is mine, it is not yours. Yeah. Didn't you learn that at two years old? That was what you learn in the terrible twos. Yeah, just ask any parent. Terrible twos. What does your kid scream? They scream a lot when they're two years old. And what do they scream about? This is mine. Yeah. You have my happy hedgehog. You have my Buddha bear. This is mine. Yeah. And then we grow up as adults and, you know, we're doing the same thing. <laughs> Just different objects that we call mine. But the, the mind that's holding that and seeing anybody who threatens it... Uh, you know, as a danger to our very existence. If I'm not sitting on my meditation cushion, how can I meditate? Um, <laughs> you know, how, how we get into these frenzies about these kinds of things, you know. And this is my idea, and nobody's listening to my idea. Or they listen to it, and then they claim it's their idea, and they don't give credit to me when it's my idea. Okay. So when they don't like the idea, I don't like them because it's my idea. When they do like my idea, but they take credit for it, and then again, I don't like them. Yeah. Okay. Who's the nutty one around here? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, how we're so caught up in seeing everything through me, I, my, and mine, that I mean, we're just completely like looking at the world, you know, through one of these, um, what do you call it, like a, yeah, well, like a kaleidoscope, or like these fences where everything's, you know, like that, and you're trying to see something and you can't, yeah, and that's, that's how we wind up being. Okay, so let's uh, continue here. Okay. So in verse 89, uh, Shandideva said, having in such ways as these thought about the excellences of solitude, and remember solitude does means solitude from the eight worldly concerns, seclusion from attachment to the happiness of only this life. It doesn't mean, you know, uh, 
finding a cave where we have no uh, nobody around who we don't like and everything we want when we want it. That's not solitude. I should completely pacify, when, so when you have this solitude in your mind, I should completely pacify distorted conceptions and meditate on bodhicitta. And then first of all, I should make an effort to meditate upon the equality between self and others. I should protect all beings as I do myself because we are all equal in wanting pleasure and not wanting pain. So that's a summary of the whole meditation on equalizing self and others. Okay. So first of all, I should make an effort. In other words, we can't just sit back and and think the understanding is going to come to us. I should make an effort to meditate upon the equality between self and others. So the equality between self and others is not like what is supposedly guaranteed to us in the Constitution and the Declaration of uh, Independence, you know, or all these other documents. You know, it's uh, because what it's talking to in the, the those documents is about everybody being equal in having certain uh, rights. Yeah. As we know, uh, the people who wrote that up, it was a wonderful idea, but they actually restricted those rights to a group that includes me, I, my, and mine, who people who were exactly like them. Okay, white, Christian, landed, wealthy men. Okay, and so all those were created equal and had equal rights. Uh, you know, but if you were poor, if you were a woman, if you were of a different race, um, you know, then forget it. Yeah. So we're not talking about about that. The ideal that's enshrined in our documents is wonderful. And I think, I don't know about you, but as a child, I really took those to heart. And I didn't have the ifs, ands, and buts attached to them of race, religion, and, and gender, and so on. You know, I just thought, wow, regarding all people, that's really a far-out idea. And, uh, and I think that many people in the country see things like that. You know, in terms of civil rights, in terms of getting what I want what I, when I want it, Mm, no, we are not all equal. Yeah. yeah. Yes, we should all have the right to vote. Yeah. But uh, you do not really have the right to have a different opinion than I am, than I do. Because if you do, you're on that side and you are, you know, evil. I mean, this is the way some people are, are uh, uh, structuring the argument that we saw in the Michael Flynn thing, you know, that this is between good and evil. Things are not so simple. They're not so simple as good and evil. And again, we like things that are simple because 
we don't like complexity. You know, we want to know, this is my friend forever. That's it. Okay. This is my enemy forever. Don't have to think about them anymore. Um, this is what I like forever. This is what I don't like, what I approve of, what I disapprove of. Yeah. And it, it makes our life, we think, more simpler. But trying to simplify everything like that, actually life makes our life more difficult because reality does not match our conceptions of this uh, false kind of simplicity. Yeah. Uh, just to give you one idea, um, some years ago, a, a young man from a different Buddhist tradition came to talk to me, and he was asking a lot of questions. And I forget what question he asked, but, you know, my reply was, well, you know, this Buddhist tradition looks at it this way, and this Buddhist tradition looks at it this way, and this one looks... You know, they have different ways to view this, the answer to your question. And his, his reply to me was, well, which one is right? And I said, well, it depends upon how, what assumptions you have, you know, and how you're looking at the issue. Because you can't say... Uh, you know, that one is objectively right. It depends on many other factors. And so it is through so much in our life. We, uh, we're always looking for something goes wrong and we're looking for one person to blame. Yeah. Situations do not go wrong because of one person. Yeah. We might say, oh, World War II all happened because of Hitler. Or it all happened because they gave away Czechoslovakia. Or, you know, just one thing. But no, there's so many things going on. Yeah, so many people involved. Yeah, that we can't just narrow things down to one simple answer. Yeah, and this leaves us in this state of we feel very uncomfortable with that. Yeah, if you, if you look in your mind when you, it's like, you know, just give me one right answer. And that that's what he asked me. And I said, <laughs> he said, you know, give me the one right answer. I said, I can't do it. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, broadening our mind to encompass I mean, this is what dependent arising is about. You know, if we want one simple answer to things, but we say, oh, I'm meditating on dependent arising, then I don't know what kind of dependent arising you're meditating on, you know, because when you really look deeply at something, there are so many things going on that we, we can't narrow it to one thing, you know? So the trick here is to manage our own discomfort. Our, our own discomfort with living in a complicated world with complicated people. Yeah. We say, you know, so-and-so is such an angry person. As if they were always and only angry. 
But in some situations, I'm sure they're quite kind and quite generous. Yeah. But our mind doesn't give them that space because we've put them in one category. Yeah. I was very surprised after my mom died and, you know, we had a reception for all the people after the, the funeral and all these people came to the house. And listening to what people said about my mom, you know, and they had a totally different view of my mom than I did. I thought, oh, that's interesting, you know. She had this whole other side. You know, she didn't, yes, she was a mom towards her kids, but she wasn't a mom towards everybody else in the world. You know, she related to them in different ways. And so they saw her in many, many different ways that I didn't see her because I only saw her like this, you know. So it's quite interesting to see that and try and enlarge our, our view of people. Okay, so let's get into this, these nine points from Chichen Rinpoche. Chichen Rinpoche, by the way, was the, the junior tutor to His Holiness Dalai Lama. And uh, he passed away in 1981. Uh, I think it was. I was in Dharamsala at the time. And uh, wow, everybody was coming down the hill to pay their respects before he died and after he died. It was a, it was a very big moment. He's, um, you know, his incarnation uh, was born to a Tibetan family who lived uh, outside of Madison, Wisconsin. And he's now living somewhere in New England. Uh, and he's not very much in touch with the Gelu tradition now because he was, uh, he was actually put in quite a difficult place, uh, position in the previous Chichen Rinpoche, the one who gave these points, was, um, was a practitioner of Zhukten, that, that uh, spirit that His Holiness asked people not to practice. And His Holiness, when he saw problems with that practice, explained to Chichen Rinpoche why he wasn't practicing it anymore and why he thought it wasn't good for the Tibetan community. And Chichen Rinpoche accepted that and, you know, there was no breach in uh, a guru-disciple relationship at all. But the whole issue got very political in the Tibetan society. And, uh, and so then the young reincarnation, he's just a little kid, but he was raised by the people who were... Uh, doing that practice and and so then he was in this I mean a very difficult position you know because I think he respected his holiness uh, and yet you know the people he lived with were for this and you know so I think as a result that's one of the reasons we don't hear so much about him um, these days yeah the, 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 um, now I'm really getting off on a tangent, but the Tulku system is a very complicated thing. It's, um, it's something that exists only in the Tibetan tradition. 
there's no tradition of of this in the sutras or anything, you know, in early uh, Buddhist history. It's something that the Tibetans began. It began with um, with the Karmapa. I forget which century, maybe fourteenth, fifteenth, something around there. Um, and and then they, this whole process of indi- uh, identifying the children who were the uh, rebirths of certain very high uh, lamas. But I, I've watched because one of my teachers was a Rinpoche, and, and then, you know, after he passed away, he was this child was identified. And I, I know the child quite well. I stayed at their house many times. But... Um, the position they're put in as little kids is very difficult, you know, because all the adults look at them as, you know, oh, you're a highly realized being. And, you know, uh, it, it's, yeah, it's very strange. One time when I lived in Singapore, the incarnation of Lama Yeshi, the Spanish child, Osak, uh, came to uh, visit Gloria, who was taking care of him. Uh, she was a nun taking care of, care of him, came with, came with him. And um, uh, I lived at this old folks' home. And uh, <laughs> it was a temple and an old folks' home. I lived in the, you know. And, uh, and so we were instructed, you know, to, to have like a reception and, and let all the people come. And so here he is. He was maybe, how old was he at the time? Maybe three, yeah, maybe three, and um, and you know, so he's sitting up in front, and then all these people come up, and it's like, oh look, he moved his hand, oh look, he smiled. I mean, this kid sitting there just being a kid, and all these people are like. You know, oh, he looked at me. Uh, maybe that means I'm special. Uh, so they're they're just kids, but they're put in this. The adults put them in this. Uh, um, what do you call the the cookers? The pressure, cookers. pressure cookers. You know, and it is no fun. Yeah, because even if you know if you're identified as a Rinpoche, you're just walking down the street. All these people come up; they they want a hand blessing, you know, with the monks touch you on on their hand, and you know you're just walking down the street. You want to be left alone. You cannot be anonymous. Yeah, and it it really is uh, is quite draining, and and people having so much expectation of you. So, yeah, that, that, that was that tangent, which I could go on for a really long time, but I'm not. I'm going to come back, and we're going to look at this teaching, okay, which already is a tangent from, you know. It, no, it's not a tangent. It's a deeper exploration of the verses here. Okay, so in this, these nine points, yeah, there's um, three groups of them. So... Uh, two groups are based on conventional truth, and one group is uh, based on ultimate truth, you know, looking at people in the ultimate way. So, um, 
or the reasons based on the, the conventional truth, the first three of those are the reasons uh, from the viewpoint of others. And then the second group of reasons based on the conventional truth are um, three reasons uh, from the perspective of oneself. And then there's three reasons from the viewpoint of the of based on the ultimate truth. Okay, from that viewpoint. So we have three groups of three. Yeah, three groups of three. Okay. So the first one, the reasons based on conventional truth. So there's three reasons from the viewpoint of others. So I'll tell you what they are and then go back and explain them. Okay. Um, so the first one is everyone wants happiness and to avoid suffering equally. Second is it's not uh, suitable to give to some beggars and not to others, but we should wish to benefit everybody equally. And third, it is not right to, it's not suitable to treat some patients, some sick or injured people and not others, but it's uh, more suitable to remove the suffering from everybody equally. Okay, so back to the first viewpoint, the first reason there. Uh, everyone wants happiness and to avoid suffering equally. Yeah, anybody can refute that? Anybody can give some reason to refute that? Come on, I'm sure you can. You've been doing it your whole life. Yeah. Why do you think, you know, that some people don't want happiness and so it's not suitable to, to give them happiness? Okay, so some people act in ways that bring them suffering. Yeah? So why should I work for their happiness? Yeah, they aren't working for their own happiness. Why should I work? What else? Uh-huh. They're, they're my enemy. Yeah. They're, why are they your enemy? They don't agree with my views or they're mean to me or you know, many things. <laughs> yeah. They don't agree. They're not to nice my, to me. <laughs> yeah, they're not nice to me. They don't agree with me. Yeah, they interfere with my happiness. They put the spatula in the wrong place. Yeah, I asked them to vacuum, to clean up one area, and they said no. Ah, yeah, they're narco narcos. Yeah, they're killing and stealing. They're destroying the fabric of society. They're making many families suffer. So they don't deserve happiness. Yeah, we want them in jail. We want them to suffer. Yeah, it makes me really sad when I hear these, um, like some with the Parkland parents, you know, when uh, the jury decided not to give them the death penalty. Some of the people were so upset, you know, like they, he killed our children, why should he live? You know, we want him dead as if 
that would alleviate their own pain, which it doesn't. Yeah. So that, that you know, we have that kind of thought sometimes. Yeah. You want who to run for president? You know, I'm a Buddhist and I love everybody, but it would be nice if he got hit by a truck before he, <laughs> you know, <laughs> for the benefit of all. <laughs> you know, this is just, uh, we have to acknowledge these thoughts in ourselves. If we don't acknowledge them, they're still there and they're affecting how we act, you know? And we have to acknowledge, as, as embarrassing as it sometimes is, to see where our mind gets hung up, you know? If we don't acknowledge it, they, these thoughts influence. Yeah? And basically what they do is they make us hypocrites. Yeah, and the thing with karma is karma, uh, the way the law of karma uh, works, it doesn't tolerate hypocrites. Yeah, you cannot pull the wool over the eyes of the law of karma. Yeah, if we have a rotten motivation, even everybody agrees with us. Yeah, if we act on that, it's going to be negative karma. doesn't matter how many people agree with us. Okay, so, you know, to just sit and ponder that, you know, think of one of those narcos. Yeah. And, or, you know, this is somebody, usually they're young men, right? Yeah. And often they're from uh, poor families, right? Okay, so you're a young man from a poor family. Yeah. Your image of what you're supposed to grow up to be is you're supposed to be able to support a family. But you don't have much education. You're not from a wealthy family. Yeah, It's difficult for you to get a, a job that pays. But... Your friend is dealing drugs, and, um, and he eats really well. And he's your friend, and he's offering to introduce you to his friends. You can join their group and, uh, you know, and start, join in the, the community business. You know, I mean, the people who, who the narcos, if, if, Many of these people have very acute business skills. It's where they're using them that we're object to. But it's not like in that way they're dumb people. If they had the chance to work in another business rather than the drug business, they might be very successful businessmen and wind up with a corner office. But they're impoverished. They don't have the education. Yeah, they don't see any examples from their family in the neighborhood they live in of people who have done otherwise. And it's, it's a livelihood. And your friends are there, and you want to be with your friends. 
Sometimes we think it's like an easy way to get the job, like their values are not into putting effort on things. Think about it. Do you think dealing drugs is an easy job? You have to be on the outlook for the cops all the time. You're looking here. You're looking there. You have to price your product, you know, at a reasonable price, not too much, not too little. Stay with the market price. You have to make sure your customers pay you on time. Yeah, if you give them credit, you sometimes have to go and and ask for the money. Yeah, you have to make sure that the, that the people who uh, are who give you the product, the distributors above you, that they're honest, that they aren't charging you too much. Yeah, it's like regular business. It's not because it's easy. Yeah. I don't think it's so easy. And you have enemies everywhere. And you have to protect yourself from all these enemies. And sometimes your your co-business people turn out to be your enemy because they cheat you or you get a little bit too uppity and you cheat them. And, you know, and then you lose your life, you lose your career, you know, so it, it's not a safe profession. It's not an easy profession. I wouldn't want to do it. It's not just hanging out on the street corner, you know, with a plastic bag full of white stuff. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not that. I mean, you have to keep accounts. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, yeah, so society looks at it, you know, oh, they're just lazy, they don't care about anything. I think if they had different role models and different opportunities in society, yeah, they would act differently. And who knows if we had grown up, you know, in the conditions that they've grown up in, we may be acting in the same way. Yeah. But it's very interesting. If you are a business person who wears a suit and tie, yeah, and stands in a corner office instead of on a street corner, yeah, different corners, (laughs) you know, then you are, uh, society looks at you differently. But you see some of the people who... um, who cheat people, like like with the um, recession in 08, a lot of that was due to, you know, all sorts of funny things going on with, I don't understand the, all the selling prime things. Who understands what? Yeah, but all this hanky-panky going on in the banking industry, the, fi- the financial industry, you know, that led to many people... Uh, you know, the banks closing down with forfeit, you know, so people had to forfeit their houses, you know, people became homeless. I mean, they harmed so many people. Yeah. Do they get arrested like the people selling a, a bag of white powder on the street corner? No. 
Yeah. So what, you know, why? Why? It's because these people, you know, whatever qualities we assume, oh, well, they're educated, so they must be honest. That is, you know, this is when somebody, you talked about the, the debating qualities, okay? So we, when you learn to debate, you learn about pervasions, okay? So here, if somebody is educated, therefore they must be honest, okay? Is that true? It's not true at all. Do many people believe it anyway? Do we believe it sometimes? Yes. Is it correct? No. Okay, there's no pervasion that if somebody is educated, then they are also honest. And you can make many examples of people like that. Okay. So, uh, you know, this, this is when we ask, you know, why things happen in one way or another, and when we look at our own thoughts, then we see that many of these very illogical ways of thinking ha- exist in us. Yeah? So... And I think this is one of them. Somebody is poor, therefore, they don't deserve uh, wealth. Because there's another, okay, so so that's one statement we have to look at, is there pervasion there. But that one is based on, if they're poor, it's their own fault. Okay, is there pervasion there? That everybody who's poor, it's because they're, it's their own fault? Can you make some examples of people who are poor, but it's not their own doing? Yeah. Children that grow up in those families. Yeah. They're poor, but it's not their own doing. And even they become adults. You still grew up in poverty. You can't get out of that mentality and that situation just by having a bigger body. It's it's very interesting if you read Michelle uh, Obama's book, Becoming. You know, she lived in the south side of Chicago. If you know anything about the south side of Chicago, you don't want to walk around there. Okay. It's in general, I mean, there's different pockets in the south side, but in general, it's quite dangerous there. She grew up in the south side of uh, Chicago. Her family was together, and her family, you know, wanted the best for her, and her father had a job. But they were living in this really poor community, and she went to a school that was, you know, in poor communities, you usually have poor schools because the government doesn't give the money to the schools that need them, okay? Why, you know, how did she get to Harvard 
and become a lawyer. When something happened, I forget what it was in the school, they changed something, who was going to what school or how the curriculum or something. Her mother went into the school and said, I want my daughter to go to this school or be in this classroom. And her mother took charge and transferred Michelle to another place where Michelle could blossom because she was an, obviously an intelligent kid. Yeah. So one change in circumstance gave her this whole different life that she would never, ever have dreamed about going, you know, with her classmates when she was in kindergarten or first grade. There's no possibility then. So, you know, these conceptions that we have, that if somebody is poor, it's their own fault. Yeah, it, that's, you know, that's not right. Yeah, and if they're, uh, what was the one I said before that? If, if they're poor, they don't, you know, they don't deserve help. Yeah, because it's their own fault, because they're lazy. Yeah, if they're poor, they don't serve help because they're lazy. Yeah. But then you see all the, the I mean, we, we believe that. We, you know, our, our funny mind believes that. Oh, if you're poor, it's because you're lazy. Yeah. But if you look at some of these drug dealers who are poor, they're not lazy. I mean, they're out there working. For a business that's harmful, but I don't know between them and the people who were behind the recession who was more harmful. So, yeah, just just the way we're thinking, it's you know they don't matter. Why? Why? They're human beings with feelings. Everybody is a human being with feelings. We need to listen, you know, and see what we can do to help. Um, I sent around a, a few days ago that uh, thing about restorative justice, and uh, the I, get, I sent around the, um, the URL for watching uh, Kim... Camontes, how, yeah, his name, Carter, yeah, to art, to watch his statement at a conference. You know, did anybody watch that? Yeah, it was quite something, wasn't it? He's very articulate. And he explained this, you know, he was arrested for murder and imprisoned, but, you know, he's explaining the, the background that he came up in and why he was the way he was, and how society is uh, just perpetuating this. One thing I really saw when I, you know, by working with inmates is that this, how much the school system is involved with producing criminals, not because the teachers are bad, but because they don't get enough funding. And the kids, uh, the funding, 
does not go to playgrounds. The fund, funding does not go to childcare or to textbooks even, or to the equipment you need to teach a child and really encourage them. Yeah. And, and some of the, even the buildings that the schools are in in some neighborhoods are terrible. Yeah. And so it's not because the teachers are bad, but it's, you know, society is not making helping these kids a priority. It's like tossing, you know, they, well, you know, they're born like that, so we don't expect much for them, so why give a lot of money for their education? And so that's why they talk about the pipeline from school to prison. And it is indeed a pipeline. Um, if you read, you know, read um, Chris Wilson's book, uh, The Master Plan. Yeah, read that one. Um, Who's the other one I read recently? That you brought me. I've read a few of, of the ones. Read Jarvin. Oh, Jarvis Masters. Um, he's written a couple of books. Read those. And then a new one's come out that a journalist did about Jarvis, named named something. But you know, it, we have these books in our library, and uh, and read them, and it opens your eyes about you know how people grow up. And one of, I remember one of the guys I was working with from Michigan, he was locked up as a teenager for robbery. And uh, I'm quite direct with the guys I work with, and I want to know, why are you in prison? Some people say you, you never ask them, you know, about what they did. I ask. Um, because if, if I'm going to help them, I need, I need that kind of information. So anyway, um, so he was telling me uh, he had, you know, a few younger siblings. And if, he said, and he was arrested for, for robbery. Um, and he said, if you open the refrigerator and all you find is a box of baking soda and you have younger siblings, you know, what, what choice do you have? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a real situation for some people. We had one young woman come to here, come here for one of our, um, young adult weeks, very early on, you know, maybe the first, second, third one we had many years ago. And um, she was telling us that her, her parents were very much into drugs, and there were many kids in her family. And one day walking to school, the kids found a $20 bill. And they went uh, back home. They were so excited because they had a $20 bill. Maybe now they could get food. So they went back home. They gave the $20 to their parents, went off to school, came home and thought, oh, you know, mom and dad will have spent the money on some food. Well, no, mom and dad spent it on drugs. Yeah? think, wow, you grow up in that kind of family where you lose trust in your parents wanting to take care of you. Yeah? 
And what, what does that do to you as a kid? You know, where you're anticipating food. You're not, it's, you're not anticipating a Christmas stocking full of, you know, all sorts of expensive gadgets. You're just wanting some food. And instead, they spent it on drugs. And she was a remarkable kid, actually. She made sure she got an education and she was working. Um, but, you know, you just think about that. And it's, yeah. So to look at our conceptions about why we think some people deserve happiness and other people don't. Okay. Now, the second and third reasons uh, are giving more specific um, indications of that, but we're out of time. Um, but maybe you have some questions. Um, I just wanted to share that um, in my previous job when I was looking at why Central Americans were leaving their country to come to the U.S., well, the narcos have sort of infiltrated their society. Whole towns are run by narcos, but they also provide a lot of services to the people. They provide clean water. They provide like after-school activities, um, soccer fields. So it's not clear that they're bad people, and they do have mixed motives. You know, they they care about their community, but at mm -hmm. the same time, they also want to make some money, and they don't care who gets hurt. Yeah. So yeah, it's not clear at all who's good and who's bad. Yeah. And they're doing the job that the government should be doing in those countries. Yeah. It's really true. In many ways, quite generous. I've thought about that before. Like, um, as far as being families that are successful, that whatever that means, you know, but that produce children that have the drive to, you know, excel at, at you know, business or, but it's all about, you know, kind of the foundation. Mm. Like you say, from when you're a child, you know, if you're brought up, you know, and there's just no talk about, you know, college or, you know, you don't get a the right push, the right, you know, to, mm -hmm. so. Yeah. And we grow up in very different families. Yeah. In my family, I, I knew before I went to kindergarten that I was going to college. I thought college was just a mandatory thing straight through that you didn't have a choice. You know, that was pounded into me. So, of course, I went to college because there was no choice. I never thought of doing anything else. But if you're raised in a family, yeah, where that is not a priority, or where maybe your parents were immigrants, your parents were impoverished, and they didn't have that kind of education, or your parents were brought up during a war, so they enlisted in the, in the army uh, before they could you know, finish their education or whatever, and then it influences how you grow up as a child, having a parent like that. Mm -hmm. So we don't start off karmically or um, societally or economically uh, on, on the same field. And we come in with our own karma to be born in certain com uh, communities, to be born in certain families. And even within that, we have our own tendencies, things that we're very much um, 
habituated to and told that we should be, and we are, or we like to be. So, you know, we're this thing where we're all created equal. You know, it. You know, I mean, that's saying that there's a creator. But e even if you believe in a creator, uh, you know, created equal doesn't mean we're really created equal. We're created very diverse, and we have we are we should have equal rights in the society. Yeah. But we often don't even have that. Yeah. If you're impoverished and you can't afford a lawyer, yeah, doesn't matter you're innocent or guilty or whatever, yeah, you're going to prison. If you have a lot of wealth and hire lawyers, then you just keep appealing and appealing and appealing and you never go to prison. Okay, so to uh, you know, look at how we judge people in, in ways that are not fair, where there is no pervasion. <laughs>